And we continue to fight the good fight of faith. Because the fight is, uh, the battle is, is still going on. I'm always uh, excited when you read uh, about the battle of Satan with God. And then there's the, uh, the, this idea that God allows the battle to go on. And then when he's finished, he just shoots Satan out of heaven like lightning. It was over before it even began. We serve an awesome God. It is great to see each of you here tonight, both members and visitors alike. We praise God for your attendance, and we're thankful to those who are online with us tonight as well. Let's go to God, please, in a word of prayer. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we we thank you so very much for this evening, for this opportunity to assemble again to worship you. We're thankful, Lord God, for the beautiful days that you give to us for the blessings of life that you grant to us. We thank you for allowing us to know you. And greater than that, O oh God, that you know us. We pray you'll keep us in the hollow of your hand and that you'll strengthen us and help us and bless us and keep us. We're thankful for Jesus, your darling son, who came and lived a perfect life. He showed us that we could live a perfect life without sin if we would... Focus 100% on you. He showed us how to live for you. Pray, Lord God, that you'll help us to grow as we learn more and more about Jesus every day. Please bless us tonight. Please watch over us and protect us and help us as only you can. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray and thank thee to be thy will. Amen. We're going to continue with this idea of of interesting facts in the Bible uh, tonight. Last week we, um, uh, well, in Bible class, I mentioned something, and I wanted to look at it tonight in Matthew 3 and verse 17. You know, the Bible says that Jesus was tempted in all ways as we, you know, he suffered and struggled as, as we do. And I, and I wanted to, to think about the fact that the Father didn't speak to Jesus as often as we might think he did. In fact, as far as the record is concerned, there's only three times that the Father spoke to Jesus. And in Matthew 3, in verse 17, is 1. The Bible speaks about uh, the baptism of Jesus. And it says, And behold, a voice out of heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then in Matthew 17, on the Mount of Transfiguration, when uh, the apostles went up with Jesus to the top of the mountain, in verse 5, While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, And behold, a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then the third is John 12, in verse 28, where Jesus speaks of the Father being glorified. And in John 12, in verse 28, the Bible says, Father, glorify thy name. And there came therefore a voice out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So what that means to us is Jesus had to go through the same thing that we go through, where he spoke to the Father audibly, but there wasn't a voice that came back. And so he too had to wait for the answer, if you will. Um, He had to have faith in knowing that God would hear or has heard everything that he echoed up into the heavens. 
He had to have faith in the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit would work with him as the Holy Spirit predicted his coming. As the Holy Spirit uh, spoke of the conception of Jesus Christ and conceived him. Anointed him. He had to have this faith and his confidence in God as he was led by the Spirit. It doesn't say the Spirit spoke to him. The Spirit just, in whatever way, led him out into the wilderness. When he did miracles, he couldn't just come up with a miracle. That was all by the power of the Holy Spirit. So he had to trust in the Holy Spirit to give him the power to perform those miracles. And then he offered himself by the power, if you will, by the Holy Spirit, he gave the great commission by the Holy Spirit. And the whole idea of the plans of God's temple was built in David's day. You know the Holy Spirit put that into the mind of David. right? And so Jesus trusted in God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Like we also trust. How do we trust? Well, we trust His Word to be true. right? The Holy Spirit promised to keep it accurate. All things that were spoken were brought to the remembrance of the apostles as they wrote. We trust in God. Jesus also had to trust in God. Turn to Luke chapter 23. Herod, the king, and Pilate were enemies. In fact, you know, Rome, there was nothing really glamorous about Rome. Uh, and so the leaders didn't even really get along. Everybody kind of hated Rome. Rome was a real brute. Uh, they were terrible people. But it's interesting when you read in Luke 23 and verse 9 about the relationship between Herod and Pilate. Listen to what happened because of Jesus. Luke 23 verse 9. And he questioned him at strength, uh, some length, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently. And Herod with his soldiers or or after uh, treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now when Herod and Pilate, they became friends with one another that very day. For before they had been in enmity with each other. So Jesus, even during his crucifixion, took away the friction that existed in the world of, in the minds of men. Herod and Pilate, of, of all people, we might say, well, why them? But it doesn't matter. God can make peace where there is no peace, right? Turn back to Genesis chapter 17. Circumcision, uh, you know, that's the, the, the foundation, if you will, of the covenants of the Old Testament. And boys usually um, didn't officially get their names until after they were circumcised on the eighth day after being born. And in Genesis 17 and verse 24, uh, here's some trouble. Now, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. So, uh, yeah, right, all the men are going, ooh, right? 99 years old. And and, and by the way, this is in, 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 uh, you know, through the blessing of God, then comes that that powerful uh, passage that teaches us, of the of the great power of God, and He made, if you will, circumcision a part of a covenant between the humanity and God Himself. One of the things that set the Israelites, the Jews, if you will, apart from the rest of the world. Turn to the book of Judges. The book of Judges. God parted the the sea or the river, different parts of um, of water, the bodies of water, four different times. 
He did it once for Moses, one for Joshua, once for uh, Elijah, and once for Elijah. I want to go to Judges because in Judges chapter 1, uh, we, we find uh, an interesting uh, passage that it kind of teaches us and reminds us that whatever a man sows, this he shall reap. We may not always witness the reaping from the sowing. Of, of Maybe someone is sowing evil against you. You may not always see it, but know for sure that God promises it and it will come. Judges chapter 1, verse 5. And they found Adonai Bezik in Bezik and fought against him. And they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And Adonai Bezik fled. And they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. And you might say, well, well why did they do that? <laughs> they cut off his thumbs. And, and we know, well, technically, right? So uh, in a war, if you don't have your t- big toes... You don't have thumbs, you can't hold a sword, and you don't have balance, so you're not going to be able to fight a war, right? But why did they do that to him? Well, keep reading, if you will, down in verse 7. And Adonai Bazik said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off, used to gather up scraps under my table, as I have done, so God repaid me. So they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. So this man was a ruthless king, and that's what he did. He would just cut off the thumbs and big toes of kings all around. Whatever you sow, you reap. Hosea chapter 8. It's one of those those principles that, you know, the world tries to take everything from us, right? Everything that they know is true without a shadow of a doubt. When someone says, well, you know, karma. I think they call it karma, right? Karma has happened. No, it's God's law of sowing and reaping. Hosea 8 and verse 7 is another example of sowing and reaping. The Bible speaks of, uh, of Israel reaping the whirlwind because of the evils that they were participating in. In verse 7, for they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. What, what I say to people is, you can choose your sin, but you cannot choose your consequence. So stay away from sin, right? Because God chooses the consequence for the sins of humanity. And the law that God put in order is, whatever man sows, this he shall reap. It's in the New Testament as well. Galatians chapter 6 and the verse 7 regarding sowing and reaping. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. But whatever man sows, this he will also reap. Why is that important? It's important, so it reminds us, you don't have to get your own revenge. Let God do it, right? Use the power of prayer and trust in God, right? We don't have to be people running out there trying to get revenge on the world or revenge on our enemies. We can just trust in God and whatever man sows. We may not see it. We may not see it in this life. But whatever man sows, know that that man will reap the wickedness of their ways. Whatever country, a country sows, it shall, you know, you just keep going through all the ideas of life. And it's true on every level. Turn back to Exodus. I'll give you another example of sowing and reaping. It's really interesting when you, when you look back at Exodus chapter 1. Pharaoh, in his wickedness and in his evil, ordered all 
the young boys to be devoured, to be destroyed, right? Listen to what he did to them. Verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. And what a, and what a terrible, what a terrible, terrible thing. Kill all those babies. Isn't it interesting when you think about it? Though it happened many, many years off, what happened to Pharaoh's army? Every one of them died and were drowned, right? Whatever you sow, it's going to come back. You don't know how it's going to come back, but it's going to come back. Who would have ever thought, turn to Proverbs chapter 30, who would have ever thought that God would open up the sea and then drown all the army as they commanded those young boys, those young babies to be thrown into the ocean? To be killed into the Nile River, rather. What a, what a grotesque people. Whatever you sow, you reap. And it wasn't just the, the fathers who did that. Even some of those sons who joined the army. All thrown and all drowned in the sea. Isn't it interesting, Proverbs chapter 30, that the Bible speaks of these, these interesting creatures. He calls them, he calls them, um, exceedingly wise. And it makes it makes you want to go back and study about these these animals, uh, it, so you'll know. Four things, verse twenty-four. Four things are small on the earth, but they are exceedingly wise. So obviously, an ant's an insect, but the ants, not a strong folk, they prepare their food in the summer. The badgers are not a mighty folk, yet. They make their houses in the rocks. The locusts have no king, yet all of them go out in ranks. The lizard, you may grasp with his hands, yet it's in king's palaces. Maybe the interesting study would be to go back and research. What makes this, these animals insects? What makes them so wise? Here's a sensational headline for you. If you pick the paper up, turn to Judges, please. You pick the newspaper up one day, and... The headline read, Man Murders Multiple Members of His Family. You'd say, whoa, what, what's going on? And you pick it up and you start reading it. And here's the paper. Today's paper comes to you. Judges 9 and verse 5. Then he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbabel, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left, for he hid himself. And all the men of Shechem and all of Beth Milo assembled together, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar which, which was in Shechem. Abimelech killed 70 of his brothers, Gideon's children. After all the Gideon did, all the good that he brought into the lives of humanity, that'd be the rest of the story, and all the good that he did and how he rescued and, and blessed the people. And then someone rises up, one of his other boys rises up to gain the power and kills, murders in cold blood all of his brothers. We live in a pretty sick world, don't we? Turn to Nehemiah, please. Or Numbers, rather. Chapter 19. Numbers, chapter 19. There, there, there's one passage in the Bible that we're going to read in a moment. Now, I, when I first read it, I thought to myself... Why is this even in the Bible? But this is a reminder to me of how cruel we can be as humans. But this is an interesting one. Um, you know, we go to cemeteries all the time, and there was an Old Testament law about visiting 
cemeteries and, and, and graveyards. Numbers 19 and verse 16. Also, anyone who uh, in the open field touches one who has been slain with a sword or who has died naturally or a human bone or a grave shall be unclean for seven days. The idea of, of going in and, and, and stepping on a grave, you, you'd be unclean. Something interesting about that, isn't it? About that body, though it's lifeless, uh, in, in the ground. Like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Make you want to go back and read a little bit about that. And even Leviticus, Leviticus uh, chapter 19. This is the one, when I read it for the first time, I wondered, well, why is this, why does God have to put a law like this in the Bible? Leviticus 19 and verse 14. You shall not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall revere your God, I am the Lord. Why would God have to put that in the Bible? Why would anyone do that, those things? But obviously we do as humans, right? Kind of interesting. God always, God's laws, by the way, when you read the laws, the laws are more of a preventative thing, right? It's when you have, when you have a king. They didn't have a king at that time. When you have a king, these are the things a king must not do. Also, he says, and when you are in the promised land, this is my law. And you start reading the law and you start going, why are these laws even in here? Because God knows all about us. And God knows how bad we are as a people. Deuteronomy chapter 20. In fact, speaking of the, the, the promised land, Canaan, a land of, they were so wicked and so evil. And you go back and you study about the the Hittites and the Amorites and the uh, Amorites and the Jebusites. And and you, you study about them and you realize how bad they really were. They were so horrible that Canaan is the only place in the Bible where God says, this is what God normally says. The law says, when you go to war, before you go to battle, you first offer terms of peace. But not when you go to Canaan. When you go to Canaan, kill them all. That tells you how bad. We're not even told. We can go back and study historically. I give you a bunch of historical information about Canaan and how horrible and how wicked it was. Uh, but uh, we, we won't have time tonight. But I'll tell you this. When you start reading the, the mandate of God, when you go in there and you even kill the children and the women... Well, surprisingly to us, we go, wow, what a tough order. But if you were living in the land of Canaan, that's what they were doing anyway. They were killing all the babies and the women. They didn't care. They were a horrible, horrible people. And I want to go to Deuteronomy chapter 20. I want to start at verse, verse 10. When you approach a city to fight against it, you shall offer it terms of peace. And it shall come about if it agrees to make peace with you and opens to you. Then it shall be that all the people who are found in it shall become your forced labor and shall serve you. However, if it does not make peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. So, here you go. Before you go to war, make peace first, right? Get, find some terms to end that war immediately, but not in Canaan. Verse 16. Only in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite and the Perizzite, 
the Hivite and the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you, in order that they may not teach you to do according to all the detestable things which they have done for their gods, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. So verse 18 is that powerful statement. Whenever you're talking to someone and they ask you, well, you, you know, you say you serve a God of peace, and yet here this God causes people to go in and destroy the world, if you will, the land of Canaan, and look at what God commanded them to do. And the answer is, when you talk to them and say, why did God do that? What was wrong with those people? Right? And then you read verse 18, and it kind of sets things in order for us to understand how horrible they were as a people. God didn't want anyone who lived to learn the ways of these people. Joshua, please. Uh, chapter 9. That's just how bad they were. Horrible people. It's one of those studies when you start looking into it. That it, it, it makes you take a step back. Because it, it really opens your eyes when you, if you ever question like, you know, God making hell. And I know it's like people don't want to hear about hell and fire and brimstone. You know, it's like a curse today. But anyway, that's one of the reasons God made You just go back and read about these people and you realize, wow, I see why God made a place called hell. Because there are some horrible people who have lived on the face of this earth, who committed horrible and grotesque sins. Joshua 9, verse 22. Then Joshua called for them and spoke to them, saying, Why have you deceived us, saying, we are from a very far, we are very far from you when you are living within our land. Now therefore, you are cursed and you shall never cease being slaves, but hewers of wood and drawers of wood, of water for the house of my God. So they answered Joshua and said, because it was certainly told you or your servants that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. Therefore, we feared greatly for our lives because of you and have done this thing. So the Gibeonites, the whole idea behind them, that, 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 that deception, I mean, it's Joshua's fault, right? I mean, you think about it, what did Joshua not do? He yeah, he didn't go to God in prayer. You know, these people want to make a contract with us. They want to make a covenant. What should we do? And then God says, no, no, these are the evil people I spoke of to you. That's just how wicked they are. And now they're going to teach you some horrible things. But they didn't go to God in prayer. As a result, Israel became more and more, over time, wicked and evil as they learned these grotesque practices. It was a horrible, horrible situation in life. God has a reason for everything that he does. We may not fully understand it. We may not even agree. But God knows what he's doing. And God always knows what's best. And God always does what is right. Always. Well, there are three people in the Bible that killed lions. One of them killed a lion, Ben and I in particular, on a snowy day. In fact, it's the only time the Bible mentions of it being a snowy day on the earth. Not that it's never snowed, but just it's the only time the Bible mentions a snowy day. We're going to Genesis chapter 2. But David and Samson. Samson killed, we know, the lion. But David also killed a lion, right? In fact, he killed a bear as well, the Bible says. But And then Benaniah. Benaniah uh, was in a pit on a snowy day, and he killed a lion. Uh, I would I would uh, be interested to see that, <laughs> that, that battle. 
but what an, what an amazing uh, passage in the scripture. So what are, what's one of the reasons the archaeologists can't find the Garden of Eden? We're all looking for it. Well, people, I guess archaeology, they're, they're looking for it. They're searching, they're digging, and they're looking, and they can't. Can't pinpoint. In fact, when you go into a, a history class and you start trying to figure out where in the world the Garden of Eden is, and God gives you four, He gives you four rivers, right? He gives you four, but there's one missing, and that's the problem. He won't give it to us. Listen to what it says in Genesis 2 and verse 10. Now, a river, and that's the one we're looking for, <laughs> flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first Pishon, and it flows around the whole land of Havilah, and where there's gold. And the gold of that land is good. And the Delam, the onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, and it flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. How can God give us four rivers and tell us one river flows into all the rivers and we still can't find the garden. When God says you're not going to find something, you're not going to find it, right? It's so amazing. It's God is, the Bible is so bold and, and so powerful. When it says, and it's still here to this day, it's still there. That's how powerful God is, the God in whom we serve. Turn to Mark chapter 4. I want to get some perspective. I want you to think about this for just a moment. Remember when Jesus and his disciples were out on their boat, and they were crossing um, uh, the the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee, by the way, is a very rough, rough sea. The winds would just pick up, you know, like here, you know, in America. Sometimes the winds would just pick up, and and amazingly, uh, this sea, the weather will come in, and you, you'll have trouble. Well, when you go to, to the account in, in Mark chapter 4, I want to look at just verse 35 and verse 36. And on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. And leaving the multitude, they took him along with them, just as he was in the boat, and other boats were with them. And I, and I think, I'm thinking of you when you they say, you know, Lord, we're going to perish out here. What was the perspective of the other people in the other boats? As they watch the sea and it's raging and just the terror. You know, these are fishermen, right? Fishermen go there in rough waters all the time. But this must have been a really, really horrific storm. And they were, they thought they were going to die in this storm. And then all of a sudden, just like that, it's done. It's calm, a bright sunny day and beautiful. What was the perspective of the other folks in the other boats when they got to the other side, you know how we talk about things like that. You know, oh, you know, this is what we were doing, trying to save the boat. And this is what and we start talking about. And then the, the apostles say, we went down to talk to Jesus. And then he said, hush, be still. And he stopped. I wonder what their perspective was like in regards to Jesus. And then in closing this out, I'll, my final thought, uh, it it will be encompassing three particular scriptures. John chapter 3. Here's something we don't want to do. We don't want to be in, in competition with each other. And you know, Satan is good at that. He makes, puts us in competition with each other, right? 
And, and in particular, you know, like when someone says, well, how many people do baptize? And how many do baptize? And it really doesn't, that's not important, right? But Satan will try to make us fight over things that we ought to never fight about. John 3 and verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. And there was spending time with them and baptizing. And John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem. Because there was much water there. And they were coming. And they were being baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. There arose therefore a discussion on the part of John's disciples. With the Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have borne witness? Behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness of me that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. In other words, John settles it down by saying, I'm not Jesus. Why are we arguing about people coming to Jesus? Don't you get that? Have you not heard the message? It's about Jesus. That was the point. Everyone's opposed to go to Jesus. And so John's baptizing. And and of course, the disciples of Jesus are baptizing. And Satan's trying to make a, a big fight over who's baptizing who. You know, the church had a problem with that, right? In, in, Corinth, in Corinth, you know, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Paulus, right? I'm one of the, you know, what kind of, a, what kind of Christian are you? Are you like a, are you a Jesus Christian or are you a, what, what is, Satan is good at causing division and strife amongst the people of God. John 4, verse 1. When therefore the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and, and baptizing more disciples than John, Although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and parted again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. It, it wasn't important. It wasn't important. You go teach the message and then pray God they answer the call of God. That's, that's it, right? Satan will make uh, a prideful moment out of anything. Let us not allow pride to destroy us. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I'm using this as an example because it is a very simple example. But it's one I think we can all relate to. A few Pharisees were converted. Only a few that we are reading about. You, You read about Nicodemus. You read about Paul. But you don't really read about a whole lot of other Pharisees. I'm not saying there weren't any. But you never read about a Sadducee ever being converted to Christ. And they were sad then, weren't they? Sadducee. Verse 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. So when we say it doesn't matter 
who baptize the individual. They have to be a Christian, though, right? Christians produce Christians, right? Apple trees produce apples, and pear trees produce pears. Christians produce Christians, right? So you don't go out and get a Catholic priest to baptize you because you believe in Jesus. No, God will bring a Christian into your life. Christians produce Christians. But as children of God, and we're all in the room, and someone comes down and says, I want to be added to the body of Christ, it doesn't matter which one of us puts you into the water. It's God's work and God's blessing, but it is a Christian who will produce a Christian. Maybe there's someone tonight that would like to surrender to Christ in the waters of baptism. If so, the opportunity is before us. If you're online and you would like to discuss baptism with us further, please communicate with us. If you're struggling and would like prayers made on your behalf, please make it known to us. If we can help in any way, please come while together we stand and sing our song of invitation. <laughs>